Hello and welcome to A History of Electronic Music, Part 16. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm Paul Sheiky, and today I'm going to be talking about the very influential synth-pop-ish band, Depeche Mode. Uh, but first, a quick reminder that you can get more info about this podcast by either joining the Facebook group, uh, just search for A History of Electronic Music. Uh, I'm also on Twitter now, which is at A-H-O-E-M podcast. And I've also set up a blog, which is at ahoem.blogspot.com. Don't worry, I don't put many things on there, but you might you might want to keep up to date with uh, the status of uh, the pre-production of this podcast. Or you can email me at shekel at hotmail.com. That's s-h-e-e-k-l at hotmail.com. And I usually send out just one email before a new episode is uh, released. And occasionally I will add extra things, uh, such as some of my own new music. And that's also the email address that you can use to make a PayPal donation if you so wish. Uh, So now on with the show. Although Depeche Mode officially got together in 1980, uh, its members were active in numerous bands, both together and separately, for a while before this. Vince Martin, who later chose Vince Clark as a stage name, first got together with Andy Fletcher and a guitarist and drummer moonlighting from another band in the ill-fated guitar band No Romance in China. They split after just one gig, but Vince and Andy stayed together and formed Composition of Sound, their third member being a Selma Autorhythm drum box. They were both around 18 at this time. Driven very much by Clark's desire not to have to work in crappy jobs for the rest of his life, the duo started taking music more seriously and realised they weren't good enough at playing guitars to be successful. So, inspired by Gary Newman's success and OMD's music, they switched to synthesizers. Ironically, Vince had to work a crappy job for a while before he could afford to buy one. So, in the meantime, he looked for someone who already owned one he found Martin Gore, who played in a band called Norman and the Worms, but also worked in a bank, so was able to get a loan to buy the single oscillator Yamaha CS5. Eventually, Vince could afford to buy a synth too, so he got another single oscillator monosynth, the Kawai K100F. Their first gig together was in May 1980, and featured Vince Clark on synth and vocals, Martin Gore on synth, Andy Fletcher on bass guitar, and someone called Rob Andrews operating the drum machine. They also recorded a demo around about this time, although I think it may have been all done by Vince himself on a four-track. Anyway, here's a composition of soundtrack from that time, and it's called Let's Get Together. composition of sound let's get together obviously quite an old demo tape probably some someone's bootleg tape but they put it on youtube after that uh, that's from about 1979 that was written by vince clark as well as most of the early songs were and i believe that featured vince clark on vocals however the painfully shy vince didn't actually want to be the front man 
uh, just the driving force behind the scenes. So he decided to look for a new singer. Here's the story in his words. Dave Garn was the local fashion accessory of Basildon. He was the new romantic. He was rumoured to have attended Blitz Club in London, so it was all very glamorous. So I decided to get him in as frontman, because he was kind of flamboyant and extrovert, and very confident, so we auditioned him. Uh, that was a quote taken from the book Stripped by Jonathan Miller. Dave Garn got the job, and more gigs followed, in increasingly high-end venues. It was at a gig at the infamous Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London in October 1980 that the band first used their new name, Depeche Mode, which means hurried fashion or fashion dispatch, and it's taken from a French fashion magazine. By this time, Andy had started using a Moog Prodigy for the bass lines, and Vince and Dave were busy touting a demo to whoever would listen. They eventually got some interest from two labels, Daniel Miller's Mute Records and Stephen Pierce's Some Bizarre. The group decided to release a single on Mute, but also agreed to contribute a track to a Some Bizarre compilation which Miller also agreed to produce. The track they chose was Photographic, and this version is a lot more like the live stuff that they were performing at the time. This is the Some Bizarre version of Photographic. Some bizarre version of Photographic from the compilation which released 1980. Excited by recording in a proper studio and having access to Daniel Miller's equipment, including for the first time a sequencer, and that's the sequencer on the ARP 2600, which was used for most of their first album, the band immediately produced their first single release, Dreaming of Me. Although it didn't break into the top 40, its light dance floor friendly sound attracted some major labels who now wanted to sign the band. But they decided to stay with Mute as Daniel really liked their music and gave them a 50-50 deal on the profits from their records. However, he couldn't afford to give them an advance at the time because it was essentially a very small label. Uh, so Martin and Andy kept their city jobs by day and travelled round in the back of a transit van by night to play gigs. Their next single, New Life, achieved greater chart success, peaking at number 11 in June 1981, despite Clark's nonsensical lyrics. But as he has said, there was no meaning in the songs at all. Nothing. Uh, that quote was again in the book Stripped. Anyway, here's some of the lyrics from New Life. Uh, see if they mean anything to you. Space is hidden and we're out of sight And the road just leads to nowhere The stranger in the door is the same as before So the question answers nowhere Complicating, circulating New life, new life Operating, generating New life, new life Still stepping on the shit, it's too tight. 
That was New Life from 1981. The success of the single led to an appearance on Top of the Pops, and an increasingly busy schedule for the band. A further single, Just Can't Get Enough, which I'm sure you know very well, uh, plus numerous gigs and promotional activities were beginning to get to Clark, and he suddenly decided to quit shortly after the release of the first album, Speak and Spell, in October 1981. In the Synth Britannia documentary, he gave what is probably one of many reasons he took the decision. I was and still am a bit of a control freak, so, you know, and with the advent of computers and sequences, I realised that I could make all of the music myself. You know, I didn't need necessarily other people to play the parts, and I got a real satisfaction out of programming all of the parts myself. Vince officially left the band two weeks after the completion of the Speak and Spell tour, and then Martin Gore stepped up as the chief songwriter. This marked a notable shift in style from quite cheesy pop songs with near-nonsense lyrics to more serious lyric-based songs. However, for their next single, they returned to a song that Martin had written a few years previously and originally written it for Norman and the Worms. Uh, but I'm playing it because it bridges the gap nicely between the Vince Clark Depeche Mode and the Martin Gore because it starts quite serious and then it goes quite cheesy and poppy after that. Uh, this is See You from 1982. album A Broken Frame from 1982 and that track also featured Martin's new synth the PPG Wave 2 a sample based wavetable synth with digital oscillators but analog filters and control knobs developed with the assistance of Tangerine Dream the Wave 2 could produce very clean bell like sounds but also good brass and choir like sounds which you heard in the background there and they were unique at the time and very influential on Depeche Mode's changing sound. The album A Broken Frame contained the group's most sombre single release to date, and a good example of some of the things that define their sound. Uh, there's a punchy electronic bass, a sharp but slightly digital lead sound, a lot of vocal harmonies and choirs, and a lot more effects on the, the vocals than previously, and occasional little digital brass things as well come in. Uh, this is 1982's Leave in Silence.
that was Leaving Silence from 1982's A Broken Frame. Meanwhile, uh, Vince was busy too, using a newly acquired Roland MC4 sequencer and a Sequential Circuits Pro 1 synth, he produced a song called Only You. He initially offered it to Depeche Mode, but they thought it wasn't in keeping with their new direction, so Vince answered an ad in Melody Maker and recruited fellow Basildon singer, Basildonian possibly, uh, Alison Moyer. Yazoo was born, and Only You got to UK number 2 in April 1982, incidentally higher than any Depeche Mode single in the UK. Here it is. Looking from a window above, it's like a story of love. Can you hear me? Came back only yesterday, I'm moving farther away. Won't you near me? All I needed was the love you gave. All I needed for another day. And all I Yazoo from 1982. Back in the Depeche camp, the band had needed a replacement for Vince during their gigs, so after a lengthy interview process, they hired Alan Wilder for that purpose. Getting to know each other a little better during the promotional tour for A Broken Frame, the band eventually asked him to become a permanent member, and he contributed to their next album, Construction Time Again. Another big change was the addition of the New England Digital Synclavier sampler, as Martin Gore and Andy Fletcher explain in a big chunk from the Synth Britannia documentary. Thank you, BBC. Around the time of construction time again, samplers had just really uh, come out. So, um, you know, we were just, it was it, just a whole revelation to us. We, you know, we were just going out and, you know, sort of like smashing pieces of metal with sledgehammers, you know, raiding the kitchen drawer for all the utensils to make percussion sounds, just anything we could get our hands on. We've got, we've got this vague idea at the moment, which was used on the demo. We've got this pebble, which we got from the mud. The mud. Yeah, look, white spots, heavy, stinging nails. Anyway, the idea is to roll the pebble on this piece of metal along here, this window frame, thus causing, that's making, this sort of sound. Construction time again really started to see us form, you know, as a, the basis of, of, of what, what we are today. That's a lot better. Anyway, and the idea is to take that sequence and to make an, an interesting rhythm out of it and to uh, sequence it all through the song, you know, so people dance. The effect of the synclavier on the music is most noticeable in the track that was just fading up in the background there because it was made entirely using it because in synclavier they also have a sequencer and an FM synthesizer. Uh, this is from Construction Time again, it's Pipeline.
from 1983's Construction Time Again and the album also shows an increasingly industrial direction to their music as that's the kind of stuff they were listening to and obviously more social minded lyrics there as well sort of railing against uh, Thatcherism in the early 80s. It also marked a kind of breakthrough in Europe where sales were much higher than previously especially in Germany where they had mixed the album in Hamza Studios in Berlin. Their next album, Some Great Reward, continued in a similar vein, but does generally sound more polished. For it, they switched to using a BBC microcomputer running the sequencing software UMI. For live work at this time, they used two Emu Emulator 2 samplers with all the sounds on floppy disks, which apparently only just loaded in time for the sets for them not to have to wait between songs too long. As well as cementing their reputation in Europe, the singles from Some Great Reward also achieved a degree of success in America, with People Are People reaching number 13 on the Billboard chart. The next single, Master and Servant, fared a lot worse in the States, due to its being banned by many radio stations because of its S&M themed lyrics. And what I'm going to play next is a remix version of that track. And I think it's the first remix that the band themselves didn't do because they commissioned reggae producer Adrian Sherwood to do it. And it's released on a, a limited edition 12 inch in 1984. This is Master and Servant, an on you sound science fiction dancehall classic. <laughs> Master and Servant, an on-new sound science fiction dancehall classic from 1984. And that's also available on the Remixes 81-04 album, which was released in 2004. 1986 saw the release of an album that would prove to be a bit of a turning point for the band. As Martin Gore has subsequently put it, For me, one of the most dramatic changes came with Black Celebration. I pretty much like everything we've put out since then. He also revealed something of the band's working methods at the time. Usually we spend two or three days before recording just sampling sounds. Then we sample as we go. If somebody has a good idea we just stop recording and do some sampling. Even David is joining in with that now which is good because he used to be just the singer. Uh, both of them quotes are from the book Stripped again by the way. Black Celebration certainly sounds more polished than any of the previous albums and featured a much more subtle use of sampling than previously. This is particularly noticeable in the opening to the first single from the album, Stripped, which features the sound of a motorbike idling, played half an octave down from its original pitch, 
and the sound of Dave's Porsche being started. Here it is. celebration also features quite a heavy snare sound which is quite indicative of their sound around this time still relying on their old ARP 2600 for a lot of the synth sounds the band took the production to another level by recording in a 48 track studio for the first time and despite a certain amount of tension between the band and its producers Daniel Miller and Gareth Jones the album is a successful break from their previous pop sound into what they describe as kind of experimental pop. Although resolutely sticking to their electronic roots, their next album featured guitars more prominently than previously. The album's title, Music for the Masses, was meant to be ironic as they thought it was the least poppy music they had done, but as it turned out, it was instrumental in sending them to superstardom both in Europe and the US. The music from the Masses tour showed that they were the world's only stadium electronic band, with Depeche Mode playing to an estimated 400,000 people worldwide. The tour culminated in a huge gig at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, which for Dave was the highlight of his career so far. For me, that image of the Rose Bowl. There was one point during the song, Never Let Me Down Again, when I jumped up onto one of the risers and I noticed that a couple of people in the audience were sort of waving their arms around. So I joined in, and then there were suddenly 70,000 people doing that. I was just overwhelmed. I kind of felt the tears in me and sweat rolling down my face, but it was joy. It was like, it doesn't get better than this. It was amazing. Basildon Boy makes good. Luckily for us, the concert was also captured on film for the documentary 101 because it was the 101st concert of that tour. And it was also released as a live album in 1988. This is the live version of Never Let Me Down Again.
the live version of Never Let Me Down Again from the album 101. Uh, the original is on the album Music for the Masses. And also on that album, uh, they continue drifting towards a classical minimalism in some of their songs. They'd explored this area before, most notably in Black Celebrations It Doesn't Matter too. But Little 15 took the idea further and features a virtual string quartet. And when it was released as a single in France, it had Alan Wilder playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata as a B-side. Also, incidentally, they did return to the orchestral idea for One Caress from Songs of Faith and Devotion, even employing a 28-piece string section and recording Martin's vocal live at the same time. Unfortunately, because they did it this way, they didn't feel that the playing was good enough for the takes with a good vocal, so on the album they ended up using sampled strings instead. Uh, But anyway, here's the sampled strings as well, and the uh, sample orchestra that they featured on Little 15. from 1987's Music for the Masses. And in a similarly minimalist vein at around this time, Alan Wilder was also working on music for his solo project, Recoil. And 1988 saw the release of his second album under that name, Hydrology. It has three long tracks and is similar in style to some of Tangerine Dream's early works. This is a track called The Sermon.
The Sermon from Recoil's 1988 album Hydrology. Uh, the Tangerine Dream-like style also fed into Depeche Mode's next album, Violator, which is not surprising really because Alan Wilder actually did most of the production for the band. Although it's particularly noticeable on the track Clean, you can hear hints of it all over the album. Another smaller influence was the dance music of the time, and it was Alan that felt sure that a song that Martin had originally written as a ballad would be better given a more upbeat treatment. Luckily he was able to persuade the others, and here's the result. classic Enjoy the Silence from 1990s Violator. A particularly elaborate way of telling somebody to shut up, I think. Anyway, Violator became the band's most successful album to date, peaking at number two in the UK and number seven in the US, a feat surpassed by their next album, which debuted at number one in both countries. However, Songs of Faith and Devotion was far from easy to make. Dave's personality had changed due to his increasing reliance on heroin, and he had clinical depression, and Alan just wanted to be left alone to work on the album by himself. However, they did manage to complete it, and its rockier feel, with more guitars and live drums, is a result of both Dave being into the LA grunge scene at the time, and the band's unceasing quest to do something different. The album also features more slower songs than previously, and here's one of them. It's a kind of gospel song really, which makes sense as there's vocal harmonies and choirs both real and synthesised all over Depeche Mode's music. And this track apparently is also considered to be Dave's best vocal performance. This is Condemnation. Surprise! 
Condemnation from 1993's Songs of Faith and Devotion. That was actually the single version because they remixed it with some uh, real gospel choirs. And the album version doesn't have that. It just has the members of the band singing on it. And also an example of Alan Wilder's drumming in that track. It was during the arduous production of Songs of Faith and Devotion that Alan first thought of quitting the band. But, like Vince Clark before him, he decided to complete the massive 15-month promotional tour for the album first. By the 1st of June 1995, his mind was made up, and he told the other band members he was quitting. In a press release, he stated some of his reasons. Whilst I believe that the calibre of our musical output has improved, the quality of our association has deteriorated to the point where I no longer feel that the end justifies the means. I have no wish to cast aspersions on any individual. Suffice to say that relations have become seriously strained, increasingly frustrating and, ultimately, in certain situations, intolerable. Given these circumstances, I have no option but to leave the group. So Alan was gone, and perhaps it's a good time to catch up on what other ex-member Vince was up to at this time. Yazoo had folded after just two albums, and Vince found himself in need of a singer again. He found success with ex-Undertones frontman Fergal Sharkey, but their hit single Never Never failed to materialise into an album. So Clark found himself placing an ad in Melody Maker. Andy Bell replied, and Erasure were born. And I'm just going to play one short track uh, to give you an example of the Erasure sound. You probably know it anyway because they've masses and massive of hits. Uh, and really just to show that Vince Clark's style didn't really change a lot. It stayed very upbeat and very poppy. And this is from the 1989 album Wild. This is Blue Savannah. with Blue Savannah. I'm not sure it's Blue Savannah song. I think it's just Blue Savannah. And uh, that's from 1989, so that's what Vince was up to. Uh, but back in the Depeche Mode camp, it seemed increasingly likely that there wouldn't be another album from the now three-piece. Andy Fletcher had had a nervous breakdown, Martin Gore drank too much and was prone to seizures, and Dave Garn was destroying himself with heroin and cocaine, to the extent that he overdosed and died for two minutes in May 1996. It wasn't until the band forced him into rehab that he was able to return to the studio to continue working. The resulting album, Ultra, may have been hard work, but it has a decidedly laid-back feel and leads very much in the direction of trip-hop, uh, this is a track from it called Useless. Useless. 
was the album version of Useless from 1997's Ultra. A generally slower and more relaxed sound also inhabits their next album, which was produced by Bjork's longtime collaborator Mark Bell, who's also known as LFO and Speedjack sometimes as well. His electronic wizardry added a new dimension to the album, the band's first of the 21st century. This is a track called When the Body Speaks. wonder whether that lyric should be oh i drink too much instead uh, but maybe it is later on in the song i can't quite remember anyway that was when the body speaks from 2001's album exciter and in that they managed to get some real strings on there at last after this the band went its separate ways for a while with dave and martin each doing a solo album they got together again for playing the angel which for the first time featured songs co-written by dave He wrote them with uh, Christian Eigner and Andrew Philpott. The album also continues a a vaguely religious theme, which the band has sort of touched upon in the past, and sees a return to a more upbeat sound. Here's one of Dave's songs, and it's called Suffer Well.
That was Sufferwell from 2005's Playing the Angel. And the album's produced by Ben Hillier. And they chose Ben Hillier again uh, for the next album because the working relationship with him was so good. And that album is 2009's Sounds of the Universe. And perhaps to show there's no hard feeling about him leaving the band, they asked Alan Wilder to remix one of the tracks from it. So this is the Alan Wilder version of In Chains. the Alan Wilder mix and that's also available on the latest release from the Depeche Mode camp uh, which is the uh, remixes to 81 to 11 and that's only available on the deluxe version though well that's about it for this episode but in conclusion I would say that Depeche Mode have forged their own sound by borrowing various things from different genres and using them very well and effectively combining disparate musical elements. Uh, I think they're probably right when they call their music experimental pop. Next time I'll be looking at one of the genres that we've sort of touched upon in the past two episodes, and that is industrial. Uh, A bit more detailed look at that. And finally, I'll leave you with the results of a recent collaboration between Vince Clark and Martin Gore. Uh, which they recently released on Mute Records. It under, goes under the name VCMG. And this is a track called Spock. Bye. <laughs> 